Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We will be starting in verse 36. Luke 7, 36. 7, 7, 7, 36, 36. This is a parable that comes while Jesus is at a dinner. The setting is that a Pharisee, and we know his name to be Simon, that a uh, Pharisee invited him to dinner. And the way dinners went back then in Jewish tradition is that you wouldn't just as one guy invite another guy to dinner. You would choose that person to be the guest of honor and invite a bunch of other people. Uh, Either in a Jewish home, you ate alone with your family, or you ate with a bunch of people. You never just invited one person over. And so, there was a group of people there, it is understood, and the way you ate back in ancient Jewish times was you actually laid down. There was a central table, and there were couches, and there were cushions, And you laid down with your head next to the table, and then you fed yourself with your right hand, and your feet were sticking way out there. And so when this woman came and started touching Jesus' feet, she isn't like under the table. There was no under the table back the way they ate. Uh, You don't get things like chairs and tables like we have today until the European view of everybody is a king and everybody is royal, therefore we sit on thrones when we eat. That's kind of where that came from. Back in Jesus' day, you didn't sit at a table. And so he invites Jesus, and the standard way that this would happen if Jesus was truly the guest of honor, as he seems to be, is that Jesus would walk, as everybody did back in those days, and as he walked to Simon's house, his feet would get dirty. They had very dirty feet back then because they wore open sandals on unpaved roads. And so traditionally, Simon or some servant would wash Jesus' feet as the guest of honor. You saw this event in the book of John When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, this was not a unique event. It was unique for Jesus to do it. But Jesus was showing that as the he was putting himself in the servant role, he was putting himself in the lowest role to take care of the most base need of the disciples. Well, Simon, as we know, didn't do that or didn't even have a servant do it. You would, you would, when the person came in, you would kiss them on both cheeks as a sign of honor. And this goes to the tradition that is shown when Judas kissed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was actually a sign of 
honor of lifting him up, and of course led to his arrest and things of this nature. So men kissing each other on the cheeks, very French-like, if you will, uh, was not uncommon, had nothing strange about it. And then they would give oil to put in the hair because it was a very dusty sort of place. Your hair could get all messed up. And so to dress up, you would put oil in your hair and then comb it through, and that would give your hair a nice sheen and actually have it be combed. You know, today we, we use all sorts of shampoos and conditioners and things of this nature. Washing your hair was not a thing in Jesus' day. You oiled it, and that is something that Jesus talks about. And, of course, that did not happen. So the other question you've got to ask is, there's a woman, she's called a sinner. If you look at the history and you look at the Gospels and you look at the New Testament about how life was in Roman times, a woman who was publicly known as a sinner was most likely a prostitute. And that is because if a woman became a widow and was fairly young, or if a woman was divorced, which was easy to do in ancient times, and she couldn't get married, the only thing she could do, according to the scripture, according to Paul, is beg or be a prostitute. Now, if she was a beggar, that is not a sin. If she was a prostitute, that would have been considered a sinner, and that's what the Pharisees' label would put on her. One question you have to ask is, how did this Pharisee, Simon, know that she was a prostitute? I'll just leave that out there. You have the sense then, after, out of all this, that you have a dinner party going on. You probably have a crowd of people perhaps outside because Jesus was gaining notoriety. He is still early in his ministry, but he's like the flavor of the month of the teacher. He's the new reformed teacher that is, that is giving things that people hadn't heard that way before. They hadn't heard teaching with authority before, as the Bible says. And so there's a group of people, and for this woman to sneak in, perhaps um, people thought that she was one of the servants, perhaps they thought whatever about it, but she was known as a prostitute. And so one thought of this is this really smells of a setup. This smells of Simon setting it up and bringing somebody in just to see how Jesus would react. We see it in the book of John where they bring in the woman caught in adultery. How do you catch a woman in adultery unless you're setting this whole thing up? And they bring this woman to Jesus while he's in the temple just to test him to see what he will do, to see if he will condemn the woman and therefore break Roman law or accept the woman and therefore break Jewish law. And so there's, there's a, a, this kind of stinks of a setup. It doesn't really say it's a setup. That isn't really seen in the Bible. It doesn't say that they were trying to test him. As, as it says in other places, but the idea that you have this woman come into a home, now granted their homes were much more open than they are today. Today we can go home after church and lock our doors and lock our windows and pull the shades 
and keep everybody out, they didn't really have that. Your average person didn't have glass in their windows, didn't have a lock on the door. So because of that, it's easy for crowds to gather if Jesus is going to dinner. Perhaps the crowds were gathering because they wanted to hear what he was going to teach because he regularly taught when he was doing normal things. And this woman snuck in somehow and is at his feet. Now, she's way over here. They're eating over here, so she's not near the food. I don't know how the room was set up, but it kind of smells. And so the person, Simon, says to himself, and we don't know if this was muttering to himself, you know, just grumbling to himself, or if he said it in his mind. However it was, Jesus heard it. Jesus can read people's minds. You cannot keep a thought away from Jesus, even today. And so he says, if he knew, Jesus, what kind of woman this was, she wouldn't let him touch him. And why is that important? Because if you are touched by a man or a woman who is a unforgiven, untemple forgiven uh, sinner, an obvious sinner, a tax collector would be like this also. Tax collector on the male side was the worst thing you could be. And if you were, if you shook hands with a tax collector, you were unclean for seven days. That is the Old Testament law. You have touched somebody who is unclean. If a clean person touches an unclean person, the unclean person always wins. A unclean makes a clean person unclean. And so whatever day of the week this was, Jesus was now in a bad way, according to uh, Simon the Pharisee, because he was now unclean for the next week. And so if this was on a Thursday, for example, he couldn't, Jesus could not participate in whatever Sabbath event was occurring because he was now unclean. And so Simon says, Jesus, a prophet, there's a rumor out there that Jesus is prophet, that Jesus is Messiah, and Simon's testing the waters and says, if he would have known that this was a sinner, he would not let her touch him. Okay, and then Jesus gives a parable, and the parable is that there's a money lender, and the money lender has lent two people money. The first one, two years worth of wages. The other, two months worth of wages. Now, when I say two years worth of wages, it isn't just two years of the extra money, it's every penny you earned for two years had to pay off that debt. It was so large. The idea that nobody's going to do that, nobody's going to not eat for two years, nobody's not going to do something, you know, get new clothes. And so it's an insurmountable debt that if you are owed two years worth of wages, it'll take you much longer than two years, perhaps the rest of your life, to pay a few pennies here and a few dollars there because you have to live and you have to eat. And the other person is two months, the same sort of thing. Perhaps somebody can um, 
pinch pennies for two months and pay it off very quickly in two months, but that would also be difficult. A two-month debt would take many months, perhaps many years to pay off, depending on how big your family is. And so these people say, I can't pay. I cannot pay, and they throw themselves on the mercy of the money lender, and the money lender says, okay, forgiven. Both debts are forgiven. And that's the parable. Two unequal debts, both forgiven fully and completely. And then Jesus says, hey, Simon, which one loved the money lender more? And Simon, not wanting to commit to anything, says, I suppose the one who had more forgiven. And if you consider that, if you look at that, if you look at things that you've owed, debts that you've had, the larger that it is, the more grateful you are when it's forgiven. The idea that uh, if I, you know, owe, somebody owes me $5 and I forgive it, they're probably going to think, hey, that's neat, you know, we'll go out for coffee someday. If somebody owes me 500000 and I forgive it, that's a bigger thing. That is a life-changing forgiveness. And so someone says the one with the bigger debt would love more. And Jesus says, you're right. Then he says, look at this woman. And this is where he starts listing the sins of Simon. Now, these are not sins that are found in the Bible, but they are cultural sins in Jewish tradition. Jews back then and today have traditions, and there are basically three levels of tradition and teaching on top of the Old Testament. We can look in Deuteronomy, and there's nothing about washing somebody's feet being a sin. We can look in Deuteronomy and see things about stealing. You're not supposed to steal. You're supposed to be honest. You're supposed to be truthful. You're not supposed to move the boundary of your house in the middle of the night and shrink the other person's land. Things like this are in Deuteronomy. But on top of that, cultural, how God wants the Jewish people to live has built the tradition over hundreds thousand years. And so he says, Jesus says, when I came here and my feet were all dirty, you didn't wash them or have your servants wash them. My feet are still dirty. Okay, that's the first strike. He says, you did not uh, kiss me on both cheeks as a way of honoring me, as a way of welcoming me into your house. This woman has kissed his feet. You didn't give oil for the hair to make the hair beautiful and silky smooth and traditional stuff. And so that's the third. And so Jesus, just in one sentence, says, you biffed it three times. You totally destroyed Jewish culture three ways with Jesus. Now, if a Pharisee friend came to Simon's house, the guess is that Simon knew these things and would have done these things 
to his Pharisee friend, but that's why this smells of a setup. That Simon just wants to cause Jesus to sin, as it were, and to be upset by this. And Jesus could have, Jesus could have demanded things of Simon and done stuff that was ungodly and unscriptural. But instead, Jesus says, you missed it three times, you sinned three times just right here. And this woman whose sins are many and sleeping around a lot of times are many sins. She has many sins, but she has covered the gap. She has stood in the gap for Simon, done what wasn't done by the supposedly godly host who was doing these things. And she is worshiping Jesus by crying on his feet, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet, and anointing them, anointing them with ointment from an alabaster jar. Now, if you look in the New Testament, every gospel has a story of a woman with an alabaster jar pouring it on Jesus. If you look at it, it's believed that Matthew, Mark, and John, it's the same story. That Luke has a different story, that this is a different story, and you say, yeah, but it's an alabaster jar. Well, when you live in a country that has no glass, has no plastic, has no Ziploc bags, where are you going to keep your very expensive perfume? You keep it in a were, And so it's very common for expensive perfume. Everybody, who every woman who had a little bit of money to buy perfume would have kept it in an alabaster jar. So this is more common than people tend to think when they read these passages. And so what do we do with this? What is Jesus saying to Simon? Is Jesus saying, this woman has a million sins, and Simon, you've only got two. Therefore, this woman will love God because all these million sins are going to be forgiven. Simon is not going to love God as much because God's only forgiving two. But if you read the story of the Gospels of how your average Pharisee is, Jesus' major conflict in the Gospel is with Pharisees, is with people who were the religious policemen of the day. And if you look at how they act and how they're used in Jesus' story, your Pharisees were self-righteous, self-justifying, self-focused, very, very prideful, demanding, not compassionate, and not forgiving. They were more willing to use a prostitute in this story and a woman caught in adultery in the other story to use people to make their point. They were not living, they were not forgiving. The Pharisee would have never noticed that the woman was worshiping Jesus from his feet while Jesus did notice. And so what is the Pharisee's problem? Well, if you turn over to 1 John 1, 8 through 10, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I bet if you were to corner 
that Pharisee and say, do you have sin? He would say, no, because throughout the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, they always came up as very self-righteous and very much knowing what's going on, and Jesus was the one who was a sinner. Then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him that is God a liar and is not in us. So Simon the Pharisee's problem is that he didn't recognize sin, he didn't confess sin. So if you were to rate the love toward God of the woman and of Simon the Pharisee, the woman knew her sin. She knew she was sinful. She was doing, in her worship of Jesus, confessing her sin. She was laying her sin bare. She was saying, I'm stuck in a place I have no choice, probably, in that society, and my result is to be living a life of sin. And so her existence day by day in this profession was a lifestyle of sin, and Jesus forgave her sin, a massive debt toward God in her sin, and forgiving her sin her response was great love to God. Now, Simon the Pharisee, he's not a sinner in his own mind. He's got it all figured out. He, him and God are like this. They are just together in everything they're doing. He knows when he wakes up in the morning, God is just so happy to see him. And when he goes to bed at night, God is just so happy that he's going to bed that everything that Simon does is just... Tickles God pink because he's so righteous. That is how the Pharisees viewed themselves. Now, someone who has that view of themselves, why would they confess anything to God? They have no sin in their own mind. Why would they confess anything to God? And so Simon's relationship to God is very utilitarian, very pragmatic because Simon has no need for God except to manipulate the people in the name of God to get things done. And so today, I have met people. Back when I worked in corporate, the corporate world, I would witness to my co-workers. And I heard many times, I don't need God. Okay, For a person to say, I don't need God, is a utilitarian, is a pragmatic view. That person and all those people, the billions of people who these days say, I don't need God, they are saying, I have no sin. I have not transgressed anything and therefore, what God is offering has no application to me because I am not a sinner. 
And what those people are saying, according to 1 John, is that if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. We need to be people, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be people who are aware of our sin. When we notice a sin, we confess it. Now, if you forget, if you unintentionally sin and you have no mind of it, it wasn't, it just happened, and it goes by the wayside, that is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you take the definition of the blood sacrifice and you look through Leviticus, you look through Deuteronomy, there was an annual sacrifice for all unintentional and forgotten sins in Israel that God made a way. He knows who we are. He knows how we are. He knows that our minds are all over the place and we don't always focus on what we're doing and we can unintentionally sin. Let it go by for years. He knows that. And so he has built a system into the Jewish system which we get the what the blood of Christ means out of the Jewish system, the blood of Christ also covers completely and fully all unintentional and forgotten sin. But if you are, if you remember a sin, if God brings a sin back to your mind, and this has happened to me, I have remembered stuff from high school that clearly, I mean, I, I, I look at it and I pray through it and I think, aha, I was mean. So I ask forgiveness for it. Now, does that sin so many years ago if I don't confess it? Does that mean I'm damned? Does that mean I'm going to hell? No, because Jesus on the cross, all my sins, all your sins, past, and future, intentional, unintentional, remembered, not remembered, forgotten for years, all of them are forgiven because I, God knows who we are. God knows how our mind works. And so we need to be people who are admitting that we are sinners, that are aware that we are sinners, and we not only confess individual sins, but we put our whole lives at the base of the cross. We put our whole lives under the blood of Christ. Now, was the woman saved because she washed Jesus' feet? Nope. The passage ends by saying, your faith has saved you. So even... At this parable, Jesus is saying we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith. The woman believed who Jesus was. And believing who Jesus was, even though he hadn't died on the cross yet and rose from the dead, even she believed who Jesus was. And that is what saved her. And you and I are going to see this woman. And look for her and find her and see this woman in heaven. I don't think, at least from this passage, we're going to see Simon in heaven. Now, of course, he could have had a change of heart. 
There's only two Pharisees that had a change of heart at the death of Jesus, and that was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Those are the only two that are mentioned by name. So I don't know, but I look and I praise God for the salvation of that woman, and I praise God for the salvation of us, that whatever sins we have committed, they were nailed to the cross, and we see them no more. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I praise your name for the cross, for the forgiveness of sins, that even while we were yet sinners, we came against you and you died for our sins, that we are not able to save ourselves. We are only saved through the blood of Christ. And Lord, we praise you for that and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.